The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Postgraduate programs at the University of Auckland Business School help you expand your future options. Whether you want to switch careers or advance in your current field, New Zealand's number one business school can help you get there. Unlock your potential today at auckland.ac.nz forward slash business. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise in banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Banking and our housing market is in many ways all about leverage. How much equity, how big is your deposit, in the home? How much of a loan can you get? And how much can you bid for the value of that home? It's the limiting factor for a lot of people who are looking to buy their first home. Since 2013, the Reserve Bank has regulated the banks so that they don't do too much low deposit, high loan lending. So the leverage is controlled. For a brief period during COVID, those rules were taken off and boy, uh, things really got going. Uh, Plenty of leverage was put back into the market. That was a temporary thing and the controls went back on. But at the moment, there's an interesting situation developing in the housing market where the housing market seems to be getting some green shoots again and starting to take off. And the Reserve Bank is looking to to control the leverage going into the market to try to keep the banking system safe. And over the next six months or so, the Reserve Bank will make a decision about whether to add in a new control on top of the loan-to-value ratio restrictions. This one would be the debt-to-income multiple restrictions. So where previously the main limiting factor was the size of your deposit, in future the limiting factor would be how much income you've got. Because some people may have a small deposit but lots of income, and the banks are pretty keen to lend to them. They can still do very low deposit, quite leveraged loans to people with high incomes. But a debt-to-income multiple control would limit that. Also, it would limit a lot of investors from looking to buy multiple properties. This week on When the Facts Change, I talk with Steve Yurkovich, the CEO of Kiwi Bank, about what's happening in the housing market. And he's come out with some quite strong views on the need to be very careful before we bring in the debt-to-income multiple controls, that there is quite a lot of capital out there in the market looking to try to solve this issue of building lots of new homes. There's a lot of new people coming into the country who have high incomes and who are looking to get into their own home who may be limited by these sorts of rules. Also, Steve talks about the potential for a lot of savings, which are currently stuck, if you like, inside KiwiSaver and other pension funds, perhaps being freed up to solve our fundamental issue, which is how do we make sure we get lots of new homes built? Not just the issue of putting some of that equity into building homes or 
along with first-time investors, but also looking to help with the infrastructure funding, which at the moment is very difficult to do given the limits on both central government and local government financing. Remember, we've got nearly $300 billion ready there from domestic savers in pension funds and in KiwiSaver funds, some of which could be used to solve our problems with a lack of investment in infrastructure, things like water, roads, rail, buses, schools, hospitals, which are needed before you can start expanding your housing supply. This week on When the Facts Change, we talk with Steve Yurkovich, the CEO of KiwiBank, about removing some of the blockages in our housing market, in our financial system, to getting those things going. Blockages, which as we speak, the government, the new government, is looking to find ways to unblock. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Well, kia ora and welcome, Steve, to the spin-off studios and When the Facts Change. Great to see you. Kia ora, great to be here. Tell us what you're hearing from people out there who are customers and you're, you're in an unusual position. You, you get to see a lot of people and you see a lot of numbers and what's the feel? Look, I've, I think overall the first thing I'd say is a lot more people feel like they're in the grind. Um, you know, more than half the people have rolled off those very, very low interest rates if they're a borrower. Uh, likewise, if they're a depositor, they're getting stronger returns for their TDs, but just most of the pain we feel is from those people that are moving to a mortgage rate that's really, really different, you know, in the seven and a half sort of range, probably, if you're a one or two year special with us at the moment. And so that's a big difference. And what we're seeing is increasingly, I think, people making choices around where can I save to make sure I can keep a roof over my head. Because the number one insight is when you ask people what financial security is, they say a roof over my head. Now, that might be a rented roof or a you know, mortgage roof or a freehold roof, but it's still a roof. And what I think we see across hospitality is a whole lot of factors at play. So if you think about you know, more work from home, got to make some choices about where I'm spending my money. Hospitality and eating out, I think, is one of the first casualties because people are saying, look, you know, 30 bucks to cook at home, $100 to eat out. If you can't afford to do that, I'll make some choices that I won't do that. So I think the sort of socialising element of that we see, you know, less spend on our cards and that sort of space. So I think, you know, it talks to people's ability to, you know, change their behaviour. And I guess when we were going through the sort of real muddle that was triple CFA, a lot of living expenses, people would say, oh, you know, I'll, I'll switch that off. I won't subscribe to that anymore. I'll eat out less when we're going through all that torturous process of, you know, all of the changes. But actually what people have done is make those changes, I reckon. And also if you think about, you know, we were testing people at 7.5% when they were paying 25 Well, actually they're paying 7.5% now. And so what seemed like a pretty academic exercise around, you know, mortgage rates are going to be low forever or not going to be anywhere near 75 actually turned out to be very quickly that. So, yeah, I think, you know, if it was in a word, I'd say in the grind. Um, property prices feel like they're on the rise. Summer helps. Uh, so I think all those things are sort of, you know, green shoots. But... You know, a lot of customers be feeling the pinch. In terms of the actual numbers, like we ran between July and September, we ran we ran five and a half thousand people that we thought might be in a tougher position. Of that, five hundred said, "Let's have a chat." Of that, about three hundred and seventy went to interest only. Seventy extended their term, and fifty went into hardship. So five thousand five hundred becomes fifty. So on the one hand, you can say that's a small number. On the other hand. 
that means that there's many, many, many more people across, uh, right across the industry thinking hard about what the future holds. So, yeah, pretty tough going, and it's it feels like it's been pretty tough going for a few years, to be fair. Yeah, but you could look at it in another way. Um, you've been aware of it for a while. I've got a few grey hairs. Uh, I remember... Uh, recessions like the early 90s when unemployment got up to nearly 11%. When in the 2008-9 recession, when there were hundreds of mortgagee sales every month, there's barely 10 a month. Yeah, that's amazing. My my first job as a lawyer is actually was acting for one of the banks doing their mortgagee sales. And, you know, we were a medium-sized firm in Auckland and we had a team of three working almost exclusively on mortgagee sales. So, you know, that was sort of, you know, 94, 95, 96. So a long time ago for some people listening, but actually not that long ago. You know, the, I was working at that time. My mortgage, I think, was sort of 10.75%. Um, you know, and we were pretty stretched when we bought our first house together with my wife and I. So you can think back to those times and realise, you know, it wasn't that long ago in the scheme of things. Um, but it does show that people adapt, like you say. And also that the banks collectively are... Um, being a lot more proactive and cautious before they pull the trigger on anything. I remember during the 2008-2009 crisis where the United States, for example, Ireland, Spain, you know, the banks were not healthy and uh, markets were in freefall and the temptation, particularly in some of those um, non-recourse states where people could send the keys back to the bank. That's obviously not the case in New Zealand. But, you know, there was a real um, nervousness. I don't sense that this time around, in part because the banks collectively are much uh, more capital rich. Um, and and also people still have a lot of equity. We keep forgetting yeah. that it's a $1.6 trillion uh, housing market backed by 300 and something billion dollars worth of mortgages. So therefore, there's a lot of equity in the yeah, gap. Totally, yeah, great point. And I wonder too, if because unemployment is quite low, that even though people are feeling the stress, those people who own assets are in a still pretty healthy position in that they've got quite a bit of equity. And also for those people who are feeling uh, financial stress, they are still getting income through the door. They yep. still have uh, a job. It may not be as much as they'd like, and it may not be allowing them to have the lifestyle they maybe had before, but it's still coming in the door. The real problem is when you don't have any money coming in the door or it's a it's a benefit. Yeah. And uh, I, it's an interesting one where I think people's views of the world are, are sort of a little bit freaked you know, the last three or four years was tough in a lot of ways. Really unusual things happened. There was a lot of stress. There was a lot of grumpy people. But when you look at it, step back and compare it to other recessions, actually a lot of equity, a lot of income, very few forced sales. And uh, I sense, and I wonder if you're seeing some of those green shoots starting to come out in the housing market and starting to to flow through into some of the smaller businesses and other parts of the economy. Yeah, look, I agree with all those things you said. There's a couple of other things I'd probably add into the mix as well as, you know, without getting too technical about it, the accounting treatment of way bad and doubtful debts works now under IFRS is, is way more dynamic than when I first started in banking. So we used to put aside a chunk of money, you know, do some economic forecasting and go, you know, that's how much we think we're probably going to need. 
the accounting standards change, which one of the problems during COVID was there was nothing, there was no bad debts for the models to respond to. So it doesn't matter what you multiply zero by, you still get zero, right? So I think investors and others have got more used to the fact that provisions will come up and down. You know, this week and last week, we've seen um, three of the big banks in New Zealand announce, you know, there's not really even a ripple around the bad debts coming up and being a bit more dynamic because I think investors have got used to that's what happens. You take the good with the bad. You know, there's plenty of capital. You take a long-term view. So I think... You know, that sort of adage, which I think maybe 10, 15 years ago from a bank was, you know, your first loss is your best one, take it early. If there was equity in it, the owner would take what was left and, and everyone would move on has really changed. And I think, as you say, you know, we had such strong appreciation in prices for quite a while. You know, people really did build up a good buffer there. Um, and, you know, if times are really tough and you want to sell, you could sell. Whereas, you know, if you think about those previous ones you talked about, sometimes it was just zero liquidity, particularly for bigger commercial property. You know, we always used to think, oh, we could discount it by X and sell it. Well, the answer was for a while you couldn't sell it for any price. So very different on that space. Um, and I do think people, you know, are adjusting, responding to those things like you say. Um, and full employment is by, you know, employment is by far the biggest swing factor for us. So if you stress test a bank, unemployment has by far the biggest impact. And so higher interest rates, low interest rates, you know, short of something really nasty like a another lockdown or a foot and mouth, heaven forbid, those sorts of things. And those scenarios that the Reserve Bank makers test against, you know, employment's the number one thing and employment has still been very full. And, you know, it'll be interesting as immigration changes, um, you know, I get the sense that those people that are coming into New Zealand are super keen to work. Um, and, you know, I think we probably haven't seen the lifestyle or the big hitter investors for a while. The people coming from, say, the Philippines, nurses, engineers, you know, working on farm, they're super keen to work and really hard working. And so I think they'll get ahead and New Zealand's better off for it. So Steve, we've sort of come through the crises, things are starting to settle down again. And we've we've come to the point where we can see that the housing market is still very elevated. Uh, and for a lot of first home buyers, it's still quite a task to get hold of that deposit. Now that the LVRs are back in, Yep. and 20% is the norm, there are still some people who can who can get by with a smaller deposit, but 20% is still the norm. Yep. And uh, the area of how do people get that deposit is, is something that people focus on a lot. And it seems on the face of it a simple financing issue, but could you tell us about what you've seen with co-own, which is an, a, a way of trying to deal with this issue? Yeah, I mean, co-own was a way we thought we could get across to customers and would-be customers that actually we were prepared to think about it differently. Because where you end up is still a home loan product, but the pathway in for co-own is that sort of difference. And so trying to open the idea up that actually, hey, you know, the four of you that get on great as flatmates, but are paying rent, maybe you want to get together and or with Fano or, or whatever you want to do and, and co-own. And so, you know, the number one idea, I think, from our idea was to get across to customers that there's different pathways. Um, and that we would be open-minded and we would, you know, try and make it feel like when Bernard came in to talk to us about that, that wasn't the first time we'd ever heard of the idea. So actually what it was doing in a sense was formalising what had happened. I think the insight for me was there's large parts of Aotearoa where the, the family or whānau is the main economic unit, and so Pacific Island, uh, Asian communities, you know, many people around the world, that is the main economic thing. And so it's sort of a very much a sort of a, a semi-pakiha construct to have mum and dad in the bank of mum and dad, and I'll come to that in a second. But, 
you know, some of the families that we've seen really flourish have put all of their economic effort into this kind of unit. And they've, you know, become residential investors and they've got businesses and the whole family's working together on that. So it's sort of formalising that. And so then the bank of mum and dad, you know, that's fine if you're in a position where you can do that support. But what's become really obvious for us as well is sometimes the mum and dad bank, almost all of their available capital is tied up in their KiwiSaver. And so, you know, if they needed to find, you know, say it's Auckland property and it's a million bucks, and as you say, while we're allowed to do 10% over 20, you know, 80% LVR, in actual fact, what that means is the banks have a buffer within that, and so it's more like 6 or 7%. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But for those that said, you know, mum and dad, you know, I've got $200,000 in my KiwiSaver, I'm prepared to give you 100000 of it and be a co-owner with you, um, and then, you know, that you, you yourself or whoever you're working with to raise the other hundred for your two hundred thousand dollars worth of deposit, that's all tied up. And you know, really, what is just regulatory decision making, which is, I can only have one KiwiSaver provider. Like, why can't I split my KiwiSaver between, say, Active Equity Investor, Self Managed Super, or whatever you like, right? Because there is a very, very big industry that's got all of that money tied into these single providers. And you're seeing some providers, um, Simplicity, and others start to move down the housing sort of situation, but. What about the mum and dad that want to free up that hundred grand and might just want to say, okay, I'll put it into a fund and I'll co-invest with people who are trying to get ahead? Or actually, no, I want to, you know, give it to my oldest daughter, Georgia, and I'll nominate that. And you can do that in Australia with self-managed super, right? So actually the rules and the precedent are there. But to me, there's, you know, it's really surprising there's not more of a conversation around compulsory super, uh, super because it creates a massive contribution that money has to be put to work in Australia, you know, because it's coming in every week. So you get a much more vibrant capital market. So you get much better infrastructure investment because people want to put the money to work. And also you can, if you know, with appropriate risks, you can make some decisions around it. So it feels like, you know, we're really ripe for innovation around how we can pull capital that's available and wants to co-invest and that sort of thing. You know, and you think about bank of mum and dad, why do they trust it? Well, they think, you know, your kids will do the right thing. You know, they want to keep a roof over their head. You want to help them get ahead. That's how you got ahead. There's lots of things that support that. And then you sort of look at this asset and go, oh, I can't touch that until I'm 65. Now, say you had your kids at 25, um, you know, you've still got from 45 to 65 where you're not able to tap that. And so it becomes a very emotive argument, even the idea that, you know, you could release your KiwiSaver to pay the rent, for instance, during the election campaign got a lot of hostile reception and, and what's a bit weird for me is that we can't have a more educated, more nuanced conversation about what that might look like and would New Zealand be better off if it was, you know, stepped up compulsory and, you know, there was more freedom to allocate that capital to different places. Aside from the compulsion issue, what's to stop um, KiwiSaver funds, you know, finding financial structures to actually invest in equity in New Zealand housing? Um you talk about quite directed investments, uh, but sometimes you can have funds that go into things. And there are others who are trying to find ways to bring in wholesale funds that co-invest with a first home buyer as a, as a substitute for the bank of mum and dad. What's to stop th that happening now? I don't think anything really other than, you know, maybe some regulatory changes, which I think in the scheme of things wouldn't be that massive. But then you need a KiwiSaver who can do it at scale and can do it cost effectively because if it's 
doesn't get to a certain size, I think you know all the KiwiSaver providers are going to say, look, the cost's too high, the administration's cost too high, the investor doesn't want to pay that fee-wise in order to make that happen. But if you could get it going at scale, uh, then I think there's nothing stopping it. But I mean, it's it probably hasn't been hasn't been the area of interest, and it's had very little innovation in it. Although you know you see some participants at the moment trying to stand up some new ideas. Mm. Taking a purist point of view. Um, there would be some who'd say, well, hang on a minute, um, KiwiSaver was designed to put savings somewhere else. Yeah. We had over-invested in housing and KiwiSaver was a way to put some money into businesses and other assets and diversify it around the world. Some would say, thank goodness, otherwise our housing market would be even more overvalued. What, what do you say to those who say, you know, we've already got $1.6 trillion in housing and only $160 billion in our stock market, this would make it even worse. Yeah, I mean, it could do. I mean, I think that's the that's the nature of having a decent dialogue about it. Like at the moment, there's not even a conversation about that. I mean, you can still make a personal, personal asset allocation choice. There's nothing stopping you doing that. Uh, but for those that want to and feel trapped that they can't do it, I, I don't see why you wouldn't allow them to do that. Um, look, and I mean, I think, you know, it's a subset of all of the different ideas that would go in there, but the KiwiSaver being bigger, being investing in the infrastructure. We keep looking to, you know, this conversation about will we allow offshore capital in. You know, I think your point that you've raised with me previously is that there's plenty of capital. You just need the incentives to be right, to be put to work, and people accepting that, you know, hey, if I think about the road I use from uh, Matakana back to Auckland, like, I don't think there's anyone that uses that road that minds paying $2.40 to be on it compared to what we used to drive on. So those sorts of long-term assets, you know, the New Zealand Super Fund and ACC and KiwiSaver Fund seem really well um, positioned to try and take advantage. That's something that actually has changed in the last decade or so, and maybe the, the public debate hasn't understood it, that we've, we've had this idea in our heads for a long time that New Zealanders were bad savers and that we didn't have enough savings ourselves to pay for our own infrastructure or to build all these houses. And uh, we'll have to bring it in from overseas and that's, you know, that could be dangerous or it could be uh, difficult if there's some sort of crisis. Much better to have domestic savers and our domestic savers are not very good. Well, actually, when you look at the scale of the super funds collectively, you've got the the big institutional state-run ones, I suppose you could say, which are ACC and New Zealand super funds. You've got KiwiSavers just gone over the $100 billion mark. Collectively, those groups of funds, KiwiSaver and then the other pension funds, are looking at nearly $300 billion yep. there. So if you were a government or um, someone who was thinking, right, we need to build 10,000 houses or 50,000 houses and we need this many pipes and this many roads and this, this much to do it, the capital is there. But interestingly, way more than 50% of it is currently in some bonds <laughs> in yeah. the United States or Australia or, or, we, or whatever. What more can be done to try to, you know, find the, the financing tools in a way to actually – because I'm sure even if you took the, um, the usual uh, theories about asset allocation and how much is local and how much is bonds and how much is stocks and all that, there'd still be room for a good chunk of that $280 billion, $300 billion to go into local infrastructure and yeah. local housing and local roads and pipes and all of that. Sort yeah, of stuff. I, look, I totally agree. I mean, I think I mean, we've got an example in, in Auckland, haven't we, where um, you think about what was the Formosa golf course, 
You've got a JV there with New Zealand Super. They're wanting to put up, I think, when I read the article the other day, 5,000 lots. Um, but the nature of that sort of thing that you raise is that it's complicated by the fact that the Auckland City Council doesn't really have the balance sheet availability at the moment to invest in the infrastructure that creates the below-the-ground infrastructure that allows 5,000 homes to be built on that site. So, you know, if they are in, in a position where they can't, you know, manage that investment, and, you know, I'm sure there's more detail to than what I'm saying, but that idea of actually if you want brownfield, greenfield development that creates these houses and places to live, that on the one hand there's the capital from the developer, but actually the infrastructure, the city council or local government or whoever is going to not perpetuate all of the wastewater problems we've got now, um, you know, how do you do that? And so if you don't have all your ducks lined up, you can have the money, but actually the, the below-ground infrastructure, you know, so who's going to behave for that? I think those are the things, the big questions that we need to crack open because, you know, when all of the Auckland beaches are closed because wastewater's flowing into the harbour, we know we've got big problems. And, you know, that whole conversation around three waters was very, very emotional, but I think most people accept that actually a lot of investment is required and it's going to need to be long-term patient capital that does that. But if you don't do that and resources consents don't flow in a way that gives you some certainty around the development, then why would you do that risk? And then maybe you're forced into a different decision, which is if you're one of those big fund providers, do you go, this is a bit hard. Why do we want to do that? When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. New Zealand's number one business school wants to help you unlock your potential. At the University of Auckland Business School, learn to innovate, research and collaborate with business leaders to drive real change. Join the business school that's doing things differently and find your passion at the University of Auckland. Check out auckland.ac.nz forward slash business to find the study option for you. And what's the the, the scale of the um, the prize, if you like, in terms of you know what? How how much activity could happen if we solved some of these financing issues? Oh, yeah. So we talked about the financing issue for first home buyers, but obviously, as you say, there's the financing issue for the councils, and then there's the financing issue for the government. In which, uh, if you could clear those blockages and um, allow people to put that money that is there uh, in, you could uh, solve a lot of the issues. We're speaking. Uh, 
several days before the formation of a government, before a lot of these certainties about how things are going to be funded, who's going to be buying, how much is going to be invested, we don't know. And so I think there's a lot of people in business, in government, in councils, developers, infrastructure providers are all waiting, really, to know a bit more about what these off-balance sheet vehicles might look like or how the uh, Auckland water investors are going to fund their thing or how Wellington Council is <laughs> going to fix its pipes. Um, but if it, if someone got it right, um, allowed some of this capital to flow in, what, what do you see for New Zealand in terms of, you know, houses built and activity and employment and all that sort of stuff? Because... I sense there's like these lots of blocked blocked pipes. Just if you can only clear them out, we can yeah. really get some, some water flow. Yeah, look, I think there's um, plenty of ambition. And if I think about, you know, we've, one of the things we're probably going to talk about, debt to income. So if you think about 100,000 people coming into Aotearoa for a better opportunity, you know, if, you, if you're not nuanced around the way you put debt to income in, then you are going to penalise those people that are buying it for the first time. But if you believe that, say, I move from the Philippines, by way of example, because I want a better life and I want a better opportunity, and that looks like having an affordable house and a decent suburb with some okay infrastructure, surely when they come in, this is probably about as tough going as they're going to find it. But their work ethic and their ability to generate and really work hard and save hard makes them a pretty good bet from our perspective in terms of being a customer. But if we're gated around what number we can do like that or you know how we're testing people, those sorts of things all sort of clog the system, as you say, clog the pipes. But if you can release that and get your ducks in a row so that, the, you know, the, the properties are coming on, that the cost to build, you know, the craziness at the moment of, you know, the, that broad media following, which is it's too expensive to build, is just going to inflate asset prices of existing stock, right, which is, you know, worrying, which will then create more pressure on what sort of deposit I need, which will then exclude first-home buyers. And then the rules around interest deductibility and those sorts of things pushed, you know, investors out from 25% for us down to 17% quite quickly. And then, you know, the idea of a, you know, debt to income that somehow, because I own four houses, my living expenses are going to go up with every new place I invest in. So if you don't think those things through, you're going to send a really weird message to people, which is actually don't invest, don't take that view and get involved. So, you know, it feels like there's a massive opportunity. Uh, feels like you know, a New Zealand that feels way more confident about itself and, and making its way in the world is right there in front of us. Just need the sort of backbone to galvanise around it. You're talking there about uh, debt income multiple controls, which is something the Reserve Bank now has in its toolkit. It hasn't actually pulled the trigger on using it yet. It said at the financial stability report a few weeks ago that it is doing some more consultation with the banks, including Kiwi Bank, about uh, how it could be brought in next year. This is something that, unlike uh, monetary policy, where the Reserve Bank is truly independent, this is something where the Reserve Bank is going to need the approval, ultimately, of a government. and so we're in this interesting period where we're just waiting to see uh, how things change with things like house prices and economic activity. Because I, I sense one of the sort of problems we've got now is that because of the high value of the housing market and the importance of it in people's personal finances and in the economy, the Reserve Bank, um, in a way, is having to use all of its toolkit to try to achieve what it wants. And 
it's responsible not only for monetary policy but also for financial stability and for keeping banks safe. And you could argue that those decisions taken in 2013 and and again and again <laughs> in the following years, it was supposed to be temporary. I seem to remember the yeah, that's the, right. the uh, loan to value ratio controls. But you sort of wonder if we hadn't had them, what else? What would have happened? Uh, and one of the interesting questions in the next six months or so will be. If the housing market does take off again and the Reserve Bank is loath to use um, uh, monetary policy, putting up interest rates, which is a pretty blunt instrument to try and uh, quieten things down. So it it um, goes back to the LVR or maybe the DTI toolkit. What's your, what's your view on, on whether it should stick to LVRs and leave DTIs out uh, or um, or use uh, uh, use only the LVRs? Yeah, I mean, interest rates are by far the most effective thing at cooling the market, as you touch on. So I don't think, you know, we, sh- we shouldn't forget that, but they implement the most amount of pain for the most amount of people. So that's, you know, you, you'd kind of not an overly popular choice to stay higher for longer. So I think that plays a part. I mean, I think there's other things like the servicing um, abilities, the test rates that are used. There's other tools there that could be pretty easily implemented and say, okay, we want a floor test rate of X. That will cool things around what people can afford. So while getting ready for and you know generally supportive of DTI, um, the, this is one where the devil's really in the detail, and that needs to be really carefully thought through. Uh, so... You know, the history of those things being implemented and being well thought through is a bit checkered, if you think about triple CFA. So there is other changes we could make in that sort of situation. So I think there's readily available tools. Um, and look, I mean, no point in having a pity party for banks, but we've spent a lot of money on trying to make regulatory changes. And I think, you know, some of the things that they might, that customers might expect we're able to do, we've had to make choices around investing in, you know, regulatory change and then change after change. I think, you know, it's probably stifled some innovation. Um, there's always an argument to say, hey, you make a lot of money, you could do more. But actually, like any business, we can only handle so much change without putting customers at risk. And, you know, I think some of the not well thought through changes over the last decade and a half have caused us to have to go back and, and fix things and remediate things pretty badly. So, um, yeah, I think there's lots of things that can go in there. I just I wonder how much, you know, the foreign buyers and all that sort of stuff is going to be a hot potato um, as we try and get a stable government. It was interesting, you know, today hearing um, the would-be Prime Minister, I guess, talk about, you know, wanting to set something up that can last six to nine years. So maybe that's why, you know, discussions have to be um, pretty detailed and there's a lot to get through, but also I think people are getting frustrated. Mm. And I think the risk is that we sort of lurch into something because suddenly people think, oh, it's been going on for too long. I think Spain's been going for 16 weeks, hasn't it? And I think they're trying yeah. to just got there this week or something. So <laughs> no one wants that sort of length of time. No. A lot of uncertainty around. Um, but um, you have to manage a balance sheet and a P&L and a bunch of uh, people. Um, could you tell us a bit about uh, what's happened to your balance sheet in terms of capital that's coming in and what that means for your plans going forward? Yeah, I mean, um, the one thing that rating agencies were always kind of interested in was – um, you've got this shareholder, which is, you know, on behalf of the Crown, which gives us good comfort that if you need the money, you can get it, uh, but we'd prefer to see it rather than you tell me about it. And so the $225 million, which was the proceeds of the sale of Kiwi Wealth to Fisher Funds, um, having that injected into the balance sheet was a really big tick in the sense of far better to see it than be told about it. So that gives us, you know, really good certainty 
I think the number one thing you can do in banking if you want to grow and have sustainable returns is be consistent. And so the 225 million means that, you know, we've got capital to deploy. We think there's a big opportunity. And these types of markets, what we typically, I think we typically see is the bigger banks sort of step back a little bit. If you look at the last three results, uh, one of them didn't grow at all really in business banking. A couple of others have been very moderate growth below system. And so actually, you know, they're making the decisions that they think are sensible, but they're sort of consolidating, you know, sticking to where they are, being open for quality business is probably the argument they'd make. But actually, we've seen that system really slow. That's been great for us on the home loan market. We haven't needed to change our settings. Um, One of the things we did was we were really light on the ground in terms of our advisor reach. I noticed some figures in Australia the other day, actually, it was 78% of loans originated by a mortgage broker or advisor, whatever you want to, you know, which particular flavour you are. You know, New Zealand's still sort of 50-50, and in high interest rate times, people do want, you know, independent advice. And so while people are still coming to the bank and still coming to our mobile mortgage manager, the whole market trend has been towards more brokers. And so being in front of those brokers and acting and, and working with them as trusted parties and partners has given us a big opportunity. So home loan business has grown really strongly, about one and a half times the market, which when I see the other three results, uh, and actually all four of the big bank results, it's, you know we've done a lot better. Uh, business banking is pretty tough going. So while we grew really strongly last year, what we see now in small, medium businesses a lot of people kind of just going, you know what, I'll just hold off for a while. Maybe I won't employ a few more people. Maybe I won't buy that piece of capital equipment. Maybe I won't expand my branches. So, you know, some of the results have actually been pretty strong, but I think people are sort of thinking, actually, this might be just getting a bit harder. Maybe I'll back off. As I say, I think the exception to that is, you know, hospitality um, feels like it's doing it tough. And because those are one of the things that make people make choices around, um, you know, so that's, yeah. So look, I mean, the bank's been in good shape. Um, you know, we think we balance performance through purpose so people understand about our B Corp and that they own us. So I think they they get that story. I think the brand um, tells a better story of that than it historically did. So, yeah, we're pretty pleased with all those things. So with the potential for growth, um, some banks choose, okay, we're going to focus on housing or it might be Auckland or uh, it might be mortgage brokers, yep. or it might be um, small to medium enterprise, or the big end of town corporate uh, lending. Is there any particular uh, focus for what your plans are for the next year or two? Now that you've got that little bit more capital, yeah, I mean, pretty much for us, it's we we think we do best, and New Zealand is better off when we focus on the things that we think we're pretty good at, which is the home loan market, everyday banking, and small to medium business banking. We're super clear that we're not going to be inside the farm gate because you need a lot of specialist skills, I think, having worked in that part of the business previously. Um, and you need you know, really strong local community engagement, and there's actually five banks in New Zealand doing that, uh, including Rabo, who that's all they do and do a good job of it, I think. And then institutional is really tough going, leverages a lot of your balance sheet, and when you're our size, the return for the capital allocation is pretty tough going. Um, and we don't think that we have the sort of, you know, the broader institutional transactional banking capabilities you need to really make that work. Um, so while we do some participation in syndicate lending and those sorts of things, it's actually a very small part of our business. So super clear about what we want to be. Uh, that's, you know, everyday banking, retail home loans and business banking. And those are by far the biggest areas um, of interest, opportunity and revenue in the New Zealand banking market. So why we say we're selected, we've actually selected 90% of what goes on. And so, 
Um, we think we're at our best when we stick to being simple and easy and accessible, uh, and that's what we want to do. And just finally, um, we're three and a half years on from COVID, and a lot of businesses are now starting to settle down and have a look at their numbers, and they've had a chance to survey their staff and think about where we are. There's a lot of people who are working 100% from home. Uh, some of them have come back. Some of them have come back a few days a week. How are you seeing the um, the shakeout of working from home, hybrid work, what you do with the number of square metres of floor space you've got, all of that. What what are you thinking at the moment? Yeah, um, so there's a number of our roles where the flexibility, say being in a branch, is it isn't very flexible. You know, we're open seven days a week from this time till this time, so we need team members there. So you've got to think about our business sort of in parts because, you know, the busiest days of the week for us in our branches are the seven-day branches in the malls. So, you know, we've got team members that their degree of flexibility is reasonably limited, um, we've got contact centre teams um, and one flexible team where we're looking after customers and we're a mix of in-office, hybrid and fully remote. So across that part of our business, we've got quite a degree of flexibility. Um, in the head office style roles in our head offices in Christchurch, you know, Wellington, Hastings and Auckland, uh, per, m- the vast majority of people in three days a week with flexibility. Like for instance, I come in every day, but that's my choice. But the um, the KB Flex, which is our sort of policy, uh, is three days a week. Uh, what I see in our building, and we've got four businesses in our building, actually, is we have a lot more people in. Uh, and I don't know whether that's their policy setting or just their workforce and those things. But certainly when I look across the building, because um, we're in a big open plan with a big atrium in the middle, you can hear the sound. Um, and you can see some businesses have gone with, you know, once a week, once a fortnight, they try and have an all hands, uh, which may work fine for them. I think the thing that's kind of interesting for me is we went through that, okay, everyone has to go home. Okay, how are we going to get some people back? Okay, what, what's the sort of guidelines around that? Because I think if you start mandating things, people get very angsty with you, understand, understandably. But I think if I went to you and said, I'm going to pay you the same amount, but you can have more flexibility, I'd go, yep, that sounds like a pretty good deal. What I sort of worry about a little bit is that conversation, which is, you know, I don't really have a lot of connection to my teammates other than through Teams and Microsoft Teams and, you know, remote working. Actually, how do I get up to speed? How do I handle my ups and downs, the emotions that come with the role? You know, if I'm in a job where I'm looking after people, say, for instance, who are dealing with hardship, every single call is very emotional. Whereas, you know, not everything I do every day is emotional. Some of it's administrative and some of it's, you know, talking to people and coming to things like this. I get real breaks where some of our team members, you know, are really facing in a tough conversations a lot. And I worry if you're, you know, sitting around where I grew up in, say, Pyro, and I don't see any of my workmates, how do I kind of connect? How do I feel part of it? But it's also obvious from cost of living situations that, you know, paying for parking, paying for lunches, you know, the commute times, you know, I drove down this morning from um, a little bit further up north, hour and a half to get in, traffic, you know, pretty bad from Millwater through to town. You know, if I had the choice just to start work a little bit earlier and work from home, you know, that kind of makes sense as well. So often the discussion is around how employees feel about it and the very legitimate issues they're thinking about, yep. like need to look after my family, want to stay at home a few days, but quite like being in the office occasionally because yep. there's other humans there and I quite like humans. Uh, but 
from the other side of the equation, we forget that our new, well, they're not that new now, health and safety rules uh, require PCBUs, you know, the, yep. the, the directors and the people who are uh, responsible for their staff to exercise a duty of care. So how do we know that our staff are actually feeling okay yep. and are in a good situation? And that's part of, you know, managing staff and and creating a workplace is making sure everyone's healthy and because there may be some people who maybe aren't aren't coping on their own at home. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there are some sort of um, things that we've done, for instance, by way of example, you know, photos of your work set up, um, you know, trying to make sure that people are really careful about, you know, how, how much, whether they're always on and those sorts of things, not scheduling meetings for an hour back to back, but 50 minutes. So there's a sort of break in those things. But actually... At a, at a trying to really understand what's going on in that household and really understand how that person is and whether they feel com, you know like some sort of compulsion to be always on or whether they you know the time that they would get if in an office when they went out for lunch and for a walk that they feel guilty when they're at home oh is someone going to see me out walking and think that I don't work you know all of those stories that you can tell yourself when you're isolated uh, you know are really tricky and so you know we we came into this so fast like I've sort of mentioning you to before. Like literally within a couple of days, it was okay. Everyone go home. You know that's almost unprecedented in work history that we suddenly changed everything for everyone in one go. You know we'd worked across different areas and teams had been geographically, you know, remote and all those sorts of things, but not at scale. And so I just don't know that we've worked that out. I really worry about jobs. You know, if I, and maybe this is just me being old fashioned, but I worry about a job where I apprenticed. You know, I saw what my boss did. I saw what my manager did. I saw how they handled conversations. I saw how they went out and conducted themselves, you know, when we went out and saw clients or customers later on. All of those things that you can do that you sort of pick up on this and think, oh, this can be a bit of a tough meeting. It'll be interesting to see how Bernard handles this one. And then you come back and you go, wow, that worked. I just never would have thought of that. You know, and you build up all these tools from observing people and being part of it. I just worry that, about that and about that, how that happens. And then there's a generation of young people or, you know, people that are in living conditions which aren't that great to work from home. So, you know, what do you do in that sort of situation? You know, you know I, I know our neighbours that, that are renters, you know, I could look in there and, and I know that they're young professional guys, but they're working off an ironing board, mm. you know, in their bedroom for months and months and months. So no wonder when the office reopens, it's like, right, let's get in here, let's see some people, let's get amongst it. So, yeah, there's, a, there's still a lot to learn, I think. Mm. Steve, thank you very much for coming into the spin-off studios here for When the Facts Change. Great to see you in person. And you. Thanks. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.